What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then you said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out, so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's funny. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Um, Look, I don't want to be a bad Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William DeGuerre. And we're going to be talking about a guy named Edmund Kemper, who, uh, you know, is a big celebrity in the intelligence profiling community. They love this guy. He's just a guy that killed a bunch of women and his grandparents. So we'll get into that. Bill, real quick, we have a question. This is from Eddie in Ventura, California, and he says, is drive-by shooting a stigma in prison? You know, he's noticed that a lot of times they take out innocent bystanders. It's kind of a real punk-ass thing to do, um, but I guess he's just wondering if it compares to, you know, the other crimes that these guys don't appreciate. Yeah, it depends on who's killed. I mean, it's a good question, and thank you for the question, but it really depends on who's killed. Uh, yeah, a lot of drive-by shootings, a lot of innocent victims that are hit to... I mean, look, I'm one of the guys that believes that, you know, don't drive by a house or shoot the freaking house up because this could be kids or something inside. It's common sense. And in the prison mentality or the convict mentality, you know, they say, do what you want to do. But if the victim happens to be a child, uh, then we're going to kill you. So it doesn't matter how the child ends up dead. If you shoot into a house and you kill a child, they're going to try and kill you. It's just that simple in prison. There is no excuse for harming a child. It's the way it is in prison. Now, you will find prisons that are you know, level ones or twos. They don't do this to them. They something that those guys walk. But in a level four prison, they'll kill them. And, and actually, there was an incident here on death row not too long ago where a guy was in prison here on death row, one of his victims was part of a drive-by shooting, and it was a 14-year-old girl. And in my book, that's a child. And uh, they killed him on the yard. It happened about a year and a half ago, and they killed him. So, it just, you, you just don't shoot in the homes. But yeah, drive-by shooting to me, is, it's kind of a punk-ass move. You're right. It's exactly what it is. Because um, if you really feel like killing somebody, I mean, hey, do what you got to do. Um, however, why would drive by? I mean, you're a gang member and that's part of your thing. I mean, face the guy, right? I mean, that's just the way I look at it. But that's to answer your question. We do appreciate your emails. Thank you for that question, Eddie. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Death Row Diaries. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcast. And recently, we've launched the Patreon page where you can get bonus content, exclusive content that you can't get other places. And that is for our subscribers. You can give a few dollars a month. It, it really doesn't matter what you give. It's just that you are supporting the show going forward. And so I, I got that up. So, Bill, we did a, a few bonus uh, episodes that we're going to be doing following every episode. We talked about the Shawshank Redemption and uh, just some other goof off stuff have you been enjoying the patreon content yeah i thought it was kind of interesting honestly to me i mean we, we've talked about the, the creating the perfect serial killer I mean, who what he would be how tall how small what he looks like what his victims so we've done some things that probably most people wouldn't do and in actually today's patreon we'll be speaking about the yard where a guy pulls off a stunt and we get the attitudes of all the guys here that just basically want to kill them. So, yeah, definitely tune in. It's good stuff. 
comes up comes up with some of these subjects and look I'm just here for the ride you you guys don't like it blame Matt you know you can't find him at death row diaries okay <laughs> yeah I, I get blamed for everything anyway so Edmund Kemper this guy is really fascinating this pretentious fat nerd ogre I would say the one thing that stands out about him is that he is articulate. He's very articulate about his crimes. He's more than willing to talk about it. Seems to be his favorite thing to do. And so he killed a bunch of women. Before that, he killed his grandparents who raised him. I Where do, where do we start with this uh, this blowhard? Yeah, this... <laughs> I always say that if you had a collection of insects and those insects were serial killers, you definitely want Edmund Kemper in that collection. He's a rare guy, and I, I think that he interests me because I'm interested in, for lack of a better term, insects that are serial killers, and this guy here is completely different than most of them. As you mentioned, he's very articulate, very... Uh, persuasive. He has a very high IQ as well as he's a very big man. He's six foot nine and a half. Uh, he's known as the co-ed killer. He's also known as the co-ed butcher, the mad titan, and big ed. These are the names that he goes by. I don't know if all these names are given to him by the media, but the co-ed killer is a pretty, uh, it's pretty obvious why they talked to him. He killed a lot of college students. Uh, he has 10 murders. Um, and really funny, uh, funny, but in his upbringing. You know, he's a very normal upbringing, per se. And most of the information we have about him comes from him directly. So, I'm going to play devil's advocate, because I like to do that here, and, and say what I believe is true and what's not true. So let's just jump into this guy. Uh, he's just, look, he knows what he's doing. He's very intelligent. And he leads people to believe what he wants them to believe. It's some, a trademark with this guy. So let's talk about him and, and, and what we know about him, which is his childhood, which is where this whole thing starts off. As you mentioned, uh, he has a mother and a father. They divorce very early on. I think he's a year old and they divorce. Um, the father stayed in California, the mom moves to Montana at some point, and he says that she abuses him by locking him in a cellar. Uh, she verbally uh, belittles him, and he doesn't like it. That's basically the abuse this guy's getting, so please keep that in mind. Yeah, he is preoccupied or obsessed with this, to say the least, and especially since we talked about H.H. H. Holmes, but this is a, a recurrent thing with a lot of these guys. You read on Wikipedia about their upbringing and, you know, various things that happened to them and how difficult it was. And at some point you go, right, the only source of this is them. And so is this an excuse to a degree for what they did? Yeah, and, and look, I've talked about this before. There's a lot of people who have 60 seconds remaining that are abused as children. So a lot of them, millions of them, and we don't have millions of serial killers. So yes, do these serial killers get some abuse? Some of them, a lot of abuse, some a little bit of abuse, some not, no abuse. But it's how they respond that sets them apart, and why I've always said they're wired differently to begin with. Let me call back. Yeah, and, and I'd like to apologize to the audience because, you know, you get these cutoffs, I have to call back, and you hear a microphone in the background. This is, this is something we do on the side just to make sure it sounds authentic. This actually is happening here because I'm calling from a 4 by 9 cell at San Quentin's death row and from San Quentin's death row. So that's why you're getting these interruptions. And, you know, we do uh, sell the show as being the only live podcast from death row, and this is the, the result. So as I was saying regarding Ed Kemper and, and any serial killer, these guys, yes, they receive some type of abuse. And, and we understand this. It happens a lot to kids. But it's their response to it. And that res 
response doesn't come from home training. There's not a manual for being a serial killer. They respond in different ways. Some of them torture animals, some of them light fires, but this is how they get to know who they truly are. There, I believe there's no better example that I've run across than Edmund Kemper when it comes to this. Because he, at a very early age, begins his career as a killer. And he's not 20, he's not 18, he's not 30, he's not 40. He's 15 years old. And how he gets in a situation is he, he runs away. There's different stories of what happened here. Again, it comes from him, so no one really knows what happened, but he supposedly leaves his mother's house because of her verbal abuse. And I really feel bad by, about that, that he's getting verbally abused by his mom. But, but his response is to run away. Other accounts say his father sent for him. But he ends up in California with his father, and his father's now married to another woman. They have a stepchild, or he has a stepchild, and Edmund comes to live with him. He's 14 years old, he's six foot five. He's a very big guy. And after a while, he ends up living with his grandparents. According to him, his grandmother's very abusive as well. These are his paternal grandparents. And, you know, that's her grandson. They love him, they treat him well, they, you know, they buy him BB guns, guns so he can go hunting. He's living pretty much a normal teenage life. And then he gets into an argument with his grandmother while his grandfather's at the store. And he responds, really, in the most extreme way. He kills his grandmother. I mean, there is no other way to put it, but he immediately just kills her. He doesn't have any kind of issue about doing it. He very calmly walks out and waits for his grandfather to arrive. When his grandfather arrives in his car from the grocery store, he kills him as well. And um, I, mean, I don't know how cold can a person be, but at 15 years old, you kill your grandmother because she pissed you off, and you walk out saying, wait for your grandfather. You kill him, and your excuse is, well, I didn't want him to suffer for seeing that his wife was killed, so I killed him as well. Right, that's kind of dubious logic, I would say. It seems like he probably just wanted to kill him. Uh, but we do see here that he had serious issues with his mom. You know, he's he's really obsessed with the fact that she kind of degraded him and, um, you know, made him feel inadequate. Was the grandmother the same way, or is he just kind of projecting this? Apparently, he had no issues with the grandfather, although he killed him. So I don't really know what to make of his narrative. It's very interesting because everyone who is interviewed about his mother and employees that work with her said that she's a very fine woman. She is... Uh, intelligent, she's cordial, she's very nice to get along with. And the same thing can be said about his grandmother. So we're getting this from Ed himself. He says that they're belittling him, they call him names, they say that no one will ever love him. These are classic things that people do, especially little kids. You know, we see kids always make excuses for what they do. You know, you see a child grab a dollar bill steals it and you say, did you take that? Well, no, I didn't. And he finally admits to it. Yes, I did it. But I, I did it because of this logic or this is why I did it. Ed Kemp does the same thing. The logic that he always gives is an excuse for why he acts the way he does. But I want to, rem I want to remind everybody, normal people don't respond to belittling and to most abuse with just killing the person at 15 years of age. So again, this kid is wired that way. There are accounts that he tortured the cat, he cut the head off the cat, and a number of different things that he did as a child. There's only like two incidents, one involving two cats. I'm willing to bet that that is inaccurate. They had a lot of different uh, incidents where he harmed animals, pit fires. These are kind of some of the things that people do when they're, they're going through issues not necessarily connected to the abuse that they're receiving, but because they're acting out. There is a rage inside them. There is a particular, they're wired a certain way 
and they're acting out because they're getting to know who they really are. And we see this. Look, he doesn't just jump up and kill at 15 years of age. He kills his grandparents. So before he does this, I'm willing to bet that he had been killing animals near the home where the grandparents were at, but he hid it from everybody. Yeah, it could also be a chicken or the egg scenario. I mean, if I had a child, God forbid, who began killing the family cat and just torturing animals and just being a complete brooding weirdo, I might make a few offhanded comments about it. You know, if they then perceive that as me verbally abusing them, it could be that he was just a, a total, you know, psycho and therefore his mom you know, addressed it. Yeah, well, let's, let's look at the other side of this. Let's just say his mother was domineering. That she had mental issues. She was an alcoholic. She belittled him. That she had all these serious mental, psychiatric issues. Let's just assume that's true. Then it stands to believe that it was inherited by him. That these, why he's wired the way he is, is because of his people, his organic brain damage that came from his mother or he had these deficiencies, these, these particular issues when he was born. So to sit here and say, well, he did it because he was belittled and his rage was against his mother and that the people he killed were surrogates for his anger, I just don't believe it. Now, it could play a very small role in it, but in terms of why he did what he did, again, he's responding to belittling by murdering Nobody normal does this. And this is just the beginning. So what does he do? He kills his grandparents and he picks up the phone and he calls his mommy. Which, that makes absolutely no sense if in fact she was domineering, she abused them, she belittled them. The last person he's going to call is his mother. R- right. So if, if no one's heard of this case, he uh, moves away from his mom's house and kills her parents and he's put into a facility and then he's released and calls his mom begins living with his mom. Go ahead, please. Exactly. So it just, it stands, well, it makes you believe that this issue about his mother is not as great as he's pretending it to be. So he calls his mother, the police come, they arrest him. And then some very interesting things happen when it comes his diagnosis. So his obviously he's killed two of his grandparents, and he's taken to um, he's taken to a jail, basically for juvenile juvenile hall. And there, psychiatrists, you know, they they have all these issues. That he's just paranoid, schizophrenic. He has hallucination. That he's uh, fantasizing about all these things, and he goes through what's considered a legal hearing and what they do is they put him in a the state hospital of Atascadero and they put him there for the criminally insane he's 15 years old so while he's there is where we start seeing that this guy begins to evolve very very quickly um, and what I mean by that is that once he enters the hospital all these signs that the other psychiatrist said he had, paranoid schizophrenia, all these different things, the doctors, the psychiatrists, the social workers, both agree that he has no delusions, no hallucinations, there's no bizarre thinking, and that his behavior traits are not as serious as they were first labeled. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Ed Kimber at the age of 15 already evolving. He's understanding what's going on around him. He's talking to different people at the facility, and they're telling him how to beat these tests, how to evolve. This happens in every jail. Once you get in there and you go to see a doctor, there's always people online, and you talk to those people online, and they're telling you what's going on in there. This is a psychiatric house where people are crazy. So all the people there understand what's going on. So they immediately issue him an IQ test. He scores 136, which is pretty damn high for a person that has really no education, is supposed to be a person that has all these issues. So it shows there that he 
psychiatrist at this mental hospital, they hold the key to his release. And all around him, all these other prisoners share information with him. So what does he do? He turns into a model prisoner. So he turns into, obviously, the, the guy that they want to see. He wins everybody over. So much so that the administration at the hospital begins to train him to test other inmates in all these psychiatric tests. So what he's doing is he's learning the system. And he retakes an IQ test, and now he scores 145, substantially higher. Now, most places they test you once, they don't test you again. What I believe happened here was, because he was giving tests to other inmates, he began to memorize the test. And he pushed to take the test again, and of course he scored higher. It boosts his ego of being this very intelligent guy, and later on we see exactly that, how it materializes in his life. So, you know, oh yeah, by the way, <laughs> you'll love this one, Matt. He also becomes one of the JCs at this hospital, and we know the JCs have now two famous serial killers in their ranks, John Gacy and now Edmund uh, Kimber. How's that for a coincidence? Two that we know of, probably a lot more than that. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, so this guy, I mean, really, he's evolving and we're watching it. Of course, when this is happening, we don't know what's going on, but now we can sit back and look at him and say, wow, this guy, like a monster, you always know, see science fiction movies where the monster evolves or the, the mad computer begins to think like a human be invented to, you know, to help humans and later on it's all thinking humans. This is Ed Kemper. He, you know, they give him information, they take him to hospital, he learns the system, he uses it against them. This is what I found really frustrating from watching him do his interviews and, and just from all the information on the case is this community of psychologists, of criminal psychologists and whatever you want to call them, they love this guy because he's so willing to talk and he's non-threatening to them and he's articulate and he'll gladly explain for hours on end why he says he did what he did. And just because he's the subject, they I would say they even glorify this guy and it's gross. One of the things I watched was this European telejournalist, and they interview this guy. I would say they're kind of kissing his ass, but at one point they ask the journalist, uh, you know, do you find him to be an interesting subject? And the guy says, no, I like him. I, I like him. I like him as a person or something. And it's like, really? I, I mean, what does that say about you? This is a guy that killed several women for his own enjoyment. Absolutely. But what we have to understand here is that you have doctors, psychiatrists who are doctors of the mind. And so if you have a regular doctor and he is able to diagnose cancer, and that's all he does is diagnose it, that's not very interesting. His score level goes really down. But if he's able to prove that he cures people that have cancer, well, of course, that makes him a very interesting person. That makes him a person that is actually solving problems. It's the same thing with these serial killers and people that have problems. Ed Kemper is very well-spoken, very well-read, and he's very intelligent. So when he speaks to these people, and they first say that you know he's got multi-personalities, he's schizophrenic, all that stuff, and then a couple of years later, they're talking to him, he's very well-spoken, he's quiet, he understands, he's willing to speak to him about his acts, and he puts reasoning behind him. Well, now, the monkey is speaking, and they're fascinated by it, and that he is this towering figure of intelligence. You know, did you know that he actually even developed an over-hostility scale? They have a, a, a normal, uh, multifaceted personality inventory, where it inventories people's personalities. He actually added to that freaking personality inventory. It's called an over-hostility scale. This is how intelligent this guy was in that field. So, of course, if he understands the scale and he understands what everything means, he knows what to tell these guys to make them say, oh, wow, look at this. It's like the gorilla all of a sudden talking. 
was just going to say, and you know what? He fooled him perfectly because at age 21, six years after murdering his grandfather and his grandmother, they parole him to uh, Aptos, California to live with his mother. And his mother at the time is an administrative assistant at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, so imagine that. This guy in 1969 is allowed out. And the person who he says is his trigger for all his mental anguish and why he responds the way he responds, well, they parole him to her home. That makes no sense. It doesn't. And she accepts him back. Do, do we know what he says or what actually happened regarding her behavior once he returned? I would assume she's not too happy that he killed uh, his grandparents. Well, from my understanding, it's, their, it's his father's grandparents. I don't know if, they, if that affects her a lot because she divorced the husband the first his father, and they didn't get along. So I don't know how she responds to them. But the relationship is basically not as bad as he says it is because she's living with her. He's living there with her for a several, uh, for a long time. It takes years he lives there. And, and you know, he's, he goes into a program where um, two and a half years later, his record is permanently expunged. You know, because he's so well behaved, he, um, he, turned, he uh, attends college, and then he pursues to become a police officer. I mean, this is all factual. He actually tries to be a cop, but he's rejected because of his size. At this point, he's almost six foot ten, and at that time, police officers had a height requirement. You couldn't be above a certain height, and six, well, six nine, six ten was just too big. So what he does is he begins to hang out with cops. They're his friends. He goes to a, a bar called the jury room where cops hang out, and this is his local hangouts. And this is what he's doing. He's just, it's almost like he's learning the system, which is very interesting because, at least to me, it is. I look at this guy as an insect, and he's an insect that does a pretty interesting thing, and that's why I look at the way he does. He gets a job in the Department of Transportation, and then there's these, these rumblings that he gets engaged. Some reports say that he was engaged. Other reports say he was not. But according to his uh, trial, or his records of, um, they state that he was engaged. So it's 1973, and he buys himself a Ford Galaxy because he had an accident. And he sued and got about $15,000 to buy him a car. And now he begins, what he, again, this comes from him, what he proclaims is he has these fantasies, but he doesn't know how really to engage them. He doesn't know what he is. And I believe that's partly true. He gets in his car, he begins driving around, he sees hitchhikers, he picks them up, and he drives them wherever he wants. As he's driving these, these women, young girls, and they're all girls, by the way, they're not men, they're all women. He's fantasizing about, should I kill them? Should I not kill them? And this is something he says he does about 150 times. I don't think that's exactly what he was doing. What I believe he was doing was practicing and getting better. So as he's driving them, he's in his mind, call it a fantasy, He's stabbing them, he's doing what he's doing, and he's getting it really rehearsed in his mind so he knows what to do when he decides to actually do it. I mean, imagine that. A guy driving around the 1930s, 70s, he's picking up college co-ed because he's practicing how he's going to kill them in the very near future. Yeah, and so his mom is working at the university if our listeners have not been to Santa Cruz, I've been there multiple times. It's basically a college town, but it's also kind of a transient town of drug users. And and uh, it's really scary. I would recommend locking your car doors if you ever go there, even to the 7-Eleven. But what I'm saying is, this is an opportunistic environment for someone like him, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. This is like, 
and slim. This is picking, perfect pickings for a guy that has these appetites. There are women everywhere. It's like going, if you're a child molester living across the street from a freaking kindergarten. It's exactly what it is. And he, you know, it's interesting because this guy begins to use terminology that other serial killers have used. And this is very early on a serial killer, you know, early 60s, early 70s. And he comes up with this phrase that he says uh, that all these hitchhikers, he picked them up. He never had an incident with them. He was very kind, very generous to them. And he helped them until he felt his little, he called it his little zapples. And once he felt the little zapples, he acted on them. Now, that term, little zapples, is what a lot of different serial killers have used. Did they use his examples because he spoke so much about it? Or did he pick it up from someone else? I don't know. Was he playing it for the camera? Possibly. But it doesn't take him long. So on May the 7th, 1972, those little zapples that he calls, they really begin to fester and push him. Um, he says that he asked his mother on a number of occasions and introduced her to the college girls and she refused. And this is why it set a trigger off of him and this is why he did what he did. Bullshit. Okay? That's crap. He's making that up to give himself an excuse for doing what he does. And here's another one for you, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, the audience, as well as Matt, I'm willing to bet that Ed is listening to this podcast. The California Department of Corrections Rehabilitation has now issued out tablets to inmates in all at different facilities. It's happening to all the facilities for better communication with emails, better communication so they can listen to podcasts, and the facility that Eddie's at is one of the institutions that got tablets, one of the first ones, even a medical facility. And, you know, knowing what I know about him, profiling him as I am, I'm willing to bet that Ed Kemper has a smile on his face right now because he's listening to me decipher him and basically calling him out on what he does and what he doesn't do, what's a lie and what's not a lie. So I'm willing to bet he's listening in on this. So that he said that that was his trigger, that's bullshit. He knows it, and I know it. Um, so his first response is on May 7, 1972. He's driving around Berkeley, California, and he sees two 18-year-old girls, Marianne Pesky and Anita Marie Lechese um, or Lechese. So he picks them up because they want to go to another university and he takes them to a secluded area near Alameda. He handcuffs Marianne and he locks um, the other young lady in the trunk. But then he takes the other girl out and because he said that she badmouthed him, he stabs and strangles her. And then he, he turns to the car and does the same to the other young lady. He then takes the two bodies to the apartment because at this point he has moved away from his mother's home temporarily. He photographs them and then he proceeds to have sex with the corpse, with both corpses. Now, I don't know about you guys, but you know, taking a corpse home to have sex with it um, screams problems, mental problems. This is not a guy that can out-talk this or somehow explain his actions. There's no way you can explain this other than say this guy is a monster wired in a certain way or pleasures that normal human beings would be offended, they would cringe at, they would turn away from this guy finds a, a turn on. This is also a guy that presents himself as a normal human being who just kind of was pushed to the limits and snapped. I don't believe that, but if I were to believe that, I wouldn't believe he would 
have sex with a dead body afterwards. Not to mention, he did it multiple times. It's not worth discussing. It's just that the profiling community seems to kind of be buying this. Yeah, anybody with law, any kind of common sense understands that this is not true. So what does he do? That he dismembers the bodies. He places them in plastic bags. He takes them to the Loma Prada Mountains. And then he, he keeps the, hat, the heads. And what does he do with the heads? This is what... Look, there is no logical explanation for what this guy does other than say that he's a sick fuck. Okay? That's what this guy is. Let me call right back. Okay. Well, you know what's interesting? There are certain people I've had a grievance with or that I really do not like. I mean, I could use Donald Trump as as an example. I have fantasized about meeting him and just pushing him down so he falls down or maybe slapping him in the face. What I haven't fantasized about is cutting off his head and keeping it. I I just wouldn't want to do that. So it's it's different. Well, that's, that would be, I guess in some way you can, you can somehow, you know, okay, you hate him so much, you chop the head off because it's your way of taking out your anger. But here's the part that makes no sense. So Ed Kemper, once he cuts the head off, he keeps the head, and he has sex with the head. So <laughs> let me explain what he does. I also don't want to do that. Mouth. Okay, well, let's not do that then. But he has sex with the head, and he does so several times before he gets rid of the head. This is a guy who is a sick person. This is, I mean, I'm not even going to use the word sick. The sick always gives you the impression that I feel sorry for this guy. There's sympathy there. There is not. So I guess this satisfies his urge for, for a couple months, and then on September 14th, he picks up now a 15-year-old child. Um, and I'm, I don't want to butcher this name. It's um, Aiko Ko, and she was hitchhiking to dance class because she missed her bus. He picks her up, he takes her to a remote area where he rapes, chokes, and kills her. And then he goes to a bar to have a few drinks with a few cops that are buddies of his. Then he returns to his apartment, he has sex with the corpse several times, he dismembers the body, and then scatters the body parts. So not only is this guy a necrophiliac, a weirdo, a rapist, a killer, he's now also a child molester. How anybody finds this guy to be interesting in the form of, I like this guy, I don't understand that. I like to study this guy like I like to study insects, but do I want to be his friend? Do I think he's a good guy? Do I like him? I do not. I don't understand anybody with the logic of even that above an insect could find this guy to be likable. He's a murderer. He's a rapist. He's a child molester. He's a necrophiliac. And I just, I don't, I don't see what the interest this guy brings to himself other than he likes to talk about himself. And this is very early on. This is very early on in the profiling cases of serial killers. And that's why this guy draws attention to himself. Yeah, and he presents it to them on a silver platter. He does his own psychoanalysis, which is armchair. I don't know. Well, just by virtue of being a serial killer and necrophiliac and child molester, I don't think he's really qualified to be doing this. But he presents his own theories, which he... I guess blames or explains away by a Freudian complex regarding his mom and that that's that's his yeah, theory yeah it's a simple scapegoat but I mean it, it, look it just continues and, 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 and not to really go over this guy's killings but he, he has a couple of months break and he goes again Cindy Scully kills her he's now living again with his mother near Cabrillo College, and he picks up the 18-year-old young lady, drives her to the area, and this time he shoots her with a 22 caliber pistol. 
uh, he drives her back to his mother's house and sticks her in the closet. She's there the entire night. The next morning when mommy goes to work, he pulls the corpse out. He has sex with it. Dismembers it in the bathtub. He keeps the head because he likes to do this for several days. And he has, again, sex with the head over the course of the next few days. Um, and he continues on with his behavior. Uh, and he does so with two different girls at the same time. And even the first time that he killed Rosalind Thorpe and Allison Blue, he, um, according to him, he has an argument with his mother again. And uh, he leaves in search of victims. Um, he picks these young ladies up and, again, he shoots them, kills them, beheads them. Uh, he carries the headless bodies into his house. He removes the bullets that he put in the body so he can't catch them. And he throws the remains in Edmund Canyon near there and near Route 1. Same thing, he has sex on the head. And, you know, this is a pattern with this guy. Um, his crimes aren't what make him so interesting. Is that on April 20, 1973, um, his mother comes home from a party and he wakes him up. And um, it's very telling. She wakes him up and he enters her room. So he enters her room, which is very telling to me. Because he hates his mother. There's no reason for him to be talking to her the way you know, she comes home and wants to talk to her. Her response is when she puts down the book she's reading. I suppose you want to spend the whole night talking again. That's her response, which is very telling, because it means it's happened before. He's come to her, he's talked to her, he, he, he wants his mom to understand him. He's a mama's boy, and I'd be, I would not be far, far from the truth if this guy has an Oedipus complex, okay? This is just me being real here. So his response is, no, 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 good night. And he leaves. When she falls asleep, he comes in the room with a claw hammer, hammers her to death, slits her throat, decapitates her, and, uh, you know, he engages in what's called irumato, which is to have sex with the head of his mother. He puts the head on a shelf, screams at it for hours on end, he throws darts at it, and then he smashes the face in and cuts the tongue out because, according to him, the bitch talked too much. Again, I think he's selling this. Had nothing to do because her response was a little, it belittled him a little bit. I guess you want to talk all night again. I'm not sure that requires you to chop her head off. But what he does is he puts his mom in the closet. He goes drinking, comes back home, he invites her mom's best friend over, Sarah Taylor, and asks her over for dinner and a movie, which she comes over. He strangles her too, he puts her in the closet, and he leaves a note for the for law enforcement. So he jumps in his car, he drives to Colorado, Pueblo, Colorado, with guns and ammunition, exposed, I don't know what that's about, since this guy, he's a pussy. He usually just confesses and turns himself in, and then he does what I just said. He takes up the phone and he calls the police department. So he calls the police department from Colorado and he confesses he confesses to an officer on the desk what he's done. And they basically laugh at him and tell him, yeah, right. So he takes up the phone again. He calls another detective, one that he believes, or at least take him seriously, and he confesses to his mother and her best friend's killing. When they pick him up, they go there to get him. He doesn't shoot out the cops. He doesn't beat anybody up. The six foot nine pussy. He basically gets cuffed up. He goes into custody, and then he confesses to all the other murders, which is eight more murders he's done. Well, in total, he's killed ten people, but this time it was eight people, including his mother and her friend. And then this is when things get really dicey and interesting. So. He is given eight life sentences. He'll never get out. And he starts this new program in prison where he's doing what he did the first time around. He gets very cozy with psychiatrists. 
He gets, he becomes a model prisoner. He does all these elaborate things with audiobooks. He's done like 5,000 hours of audiobooks. Um, he speaks to people. He has interviews. And lo and behold, in the early 70s, John Douglas of the FBI is, well, basically inventing a behavioral science unit to catch serial killers. And they start going from prison to prison looking for these guys. And who do they come to? Ed Kemper. And Ed Kemper does something that most of them will never do, which is want to talk to a cop, knowing he's being interviewed. Most serial killers, they want a hamburger, they want some pictures, they want maybe high heel shoes, they want something. Women's stockings, their fantasies. This guy does nothing of the above. He wants to talk to John Douglas and the behavioral science unit. He wants to be known. He wants to become legendary. He wants that his whole system be based on what he has not only uh, talked about, but he has deciphered the code of the serial killer. Unfortunately for the behavioral sciences, they're dealing with a guy, a narcissist, who has 60 seconds remaining, who understands what they want. So they're going to him asking him questions, well, if we have this serial killer doing X, Y, and Z, why do you think he does this? So he gives this very you know, inclusive narrative of why he did what he did and that he believes that this killer is doing this for that reason and that they want more information to come see him because he will lay out the manual serial killers for them. And that's what this guy does. He does hundreds of interviews because he likes the attention. He likes to control the narrative. Yeah, so this is the flaw in pretty much everything that's been written about this guy. The variable here, like you just said, is that he's controlling the narrative. He's presenting his story to them. And simply because he's willing to talk ad nauseum, this guy would talk for 12 straight hours or more if you just listen to him. You know, they're presenting that as sort of their findings. And it's... uh yeah, but he's very well-spoken. He doesn't get uh, animated. He doesn't get like me. I get excited when I talk about these guys. He doesn't. He's very monotone. He's very articulate. He studied all these psychiatric terms. Hell, he was giving tests to these morons when he was in, in jail. So he understands the lingo. And he's convinced a number of psychiatrists that he is non-threatening, that he is not a threat to society. And he actually believed that they were going to let him out at one point, but California is liberal, they're never going to let that guy got 10 killings, okay? He's just not going to do it. But he found a niche. And that niche is that the FBI began to use him. There have been numerous films based on his character. Kimber, the co-ed killer. Mindhunter, which was the book written by John Douglas regarding serial killers. It is like the, the Bible of, of, of serial killers, which <laughs> I would disagree with a lot of things written in that book. I've read it. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And here's the funny part. Of, you know, John Douglas, bless his heart, he wanted to do a good thing, but he got his information from serial killers. And those serial killers were putting on a performance for him. John Douglas has never been in a room with a serial killer or a yard or a place them for years, for decades to study them. He spoke to Ed Kemper. He spoke to a number of, and he was categorizing them. And yes, the FBI has come up with some pretty good notions on what these guys do and they consider themselves profilers, but they're never going to catch a serial killer because a profiler says, hey, his name is Ed Kemper. He's six foot. That doesn't happen. I know he, he brags that there's been instances where he said, well, the guy is probably a postal worker and he's done this, and sure enough, the guy was left-handed. Look, <laughs> I get what he's saying, but in this particular case, Ed Kemper just fed him a bunch of bullshit, like most serial killers. And Ed Kemper had, had a reason for it. He liked that he, you know, this is 50 years ago. He 
people talk about him. We're talking about him. There's also been books. Ed Kemper, The True Story of the Coed Killer. The True Story of the Brutal uh, Coed Butcher. There is another book called The Coed Killer, Study of the Murders, Mutilations, Among Others. Um, there is songs by Fortress, The System of the Down. There are a lot of different dramas based on what he told FBI agents. And I understand when you have nothing to go by, FBI agents are not going to come to prison and spend 10 years in a prison cell next to a serial killer to learn about him. They're not going to be on the yard with them and watch them. So I understand why they use guys like Ed Kemper, who has obviously a motive for telling his story the way he wants. Is there some truth in what he said? Of course there is. He's never going to expose exactly why he did what he did because it's not in his best interest. It doesn't serve a narrative that gives an excuse for his actions. That is what we have to look at with serial killers. Ed Kemper is a monster. And I know that he's listening right now. And I know that audience members are probably listening to Jesus Christ, Bill. You're in prison. There's a chance you might run across this guy. Six foot nine. This guy's a dangerous guy. Granted. Do I really care? Not really. Not really. This guy's an insect. And without a gun in his hand, without the ability to choke somebody out when they're not expecting it in 1971 or 72, whatever it was. Yeah, I'm not too afraid of a guy like this. What I'm here to do is to break down what is truth and what is a lie. And unfortunately for a lot of the things that have been said about this guy, they're mostly lies. And he was the one that narrated those lies because he loves the attention. I mean, you saw the interviews, right, man? I've, been, I've only seen him on 60 Minutes or one of those shows once, and when I saw him, the first thing I thought was, wow, you could drop a freaking bomb next to this guy and he wouldn't respond. You know why? Because he's completely controlled. He's holding himself tight. He's never getting too excited. He's never getting too down. He's running a very nice line. So you don't see ups and downs. That shows that he's being very controlled. He's watching every word that he says. That's why he's the way that he is. I've read yeah. Mindhunter. <laughs> I've read Mindhunter too, and I thought I was going to get some insight and some, uh, you know, maybe learn something about the science of this stuff. That is a guy throwing so many things against the wall. It should basically be called red herring. I mean, if you, if you hypothesize a hundred things about a certain person and you're right on two of them, that doesn't make you an especially skilled person, in my opinion. No, and you're right. You know, and like I said, look, God bless John Douglas. He tried a good thing. He tried. He did the best he could. There's been a lot of interest because of it. People are more aware because of his writings and what he brought. The profile unit has evolved into something that's a lot more proficient, a lot more, uh, uh, a lot more educated on the subject. So, hey, he did a good thing. Um, unfortunately, that book, as you said, it's a red herring. I mean, you, you throw a million things at the wall, two things stick, and that doesn't make you an expert. Um, one of the other things that has been said about Ted Kimber is that, you know, this whole dynamic and what he, how he killed was, it was basically a displacement of anger. You know, he was trying to kill his mother the whole time they were surrogates. Well, that's very interesting because, remember I said, I've said this over the past, almost six months that you've been doing the show, that um, consistency is something that plays a big part in how I know when someone's lying to me or not. Ed keeps saying that he killed because of his mother. He was actually killing his mother, and he leads psychiatrists down that little path. So they come up with that conclusion. Yeah, he killed because he's trying to kill his mother. That's abusive to him. Well, it's very interesting because after he killed his mother, his relationship was over. The anger did not have to be displaced anymore. She's gone. But yet he kills her best friend. Uh, so you could say, well, then, if the last murder was not 
It was not the work of a serial killer. It was the work of a person who was lodged for killing to cover up another murder. That doesn't make any sense because, of course, he goes to Colorado and calls the cops on himself. What I believe happened was he killed his best friend because her mother's best friend probably made fun of him too, and he just was pissed off at her for whatever reason. Um, and then also later on, he's asked this question, and I read this in Mindhunter, and as well as in a documentary I saw on television about this guy, and he actually says in one interview that if this never would have happened, he could see himself being a grandfather, being ready for retirement, and then in another one he says, well, I could have you know, I could have just kept killing, but I decided to cool off, to come in from the cold. That is inaccurate. It's inconsistent. Because if he says that the anger is about his mother, he kills because of the anger for his mother, his mother's gone, and therefore he shouldn't kill again, then he says, well, I came in from the cold because it was time, but I could have kept killing very easily. That makes no sense at all. He's lying. So that is a Kemper, the... You know, we gotta come up with the name of this guy. The nonstop serial killer. It shouldn't be the Chicoa killer. It should just be the, the talking killer because this guy can't stop talking about this himself. Yeah, maybe junior varsity or something. I'm surprised he didn't carve out a basketball career. Uh, I have a series of quick questions. Okay. Which I've been thinking about this whole time. So, how many victims do you think he may have? Is it the reported number? Yeah, with this guy, I, I do believe that he killed the 10 people, and that's basically it. If he killed any other ones, he would have talked about it. He would have written a book about it. He would have done a million other things to bring attention to himself, especially so late now. That he's, I think he's 74 years old. He recently had a stroke in prison. He's retired from doing the, uh, the audio works he did for, for blind people. So if there were more victims, this guy is a guy that would have actually told people about it. So I've never had the experience that I know of. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I, I think I, I did almost get killed by a serial killer, but that's a story for a different time. But I've never been in the presence of someone I knew that was a serial killer. So when these journalists go in there, and, and you, it's the same thing. You're a normal person. Are you afraid? Because he's very calm and collected. But what part of your brain is picturing what he actually did and, like, I don't know how to explain it. I wouldn't be intimidated by him as an as a person, but, like, just picturing what went on. It's like, how do you know he's not just going to grab you by the jugular when you're not looking? Uh, I guess that would be a question that, or something that people normally think about in normal circumstances. With me, um, yeah, I think about what they've done. Of course, it's very difficult not to. Um, you have to know what they did in order to be able to analyze these guys and study them. You have to know that in order to see why they act the way they do it, and you put all these pieces of a puzzle together. Um, he's very intimidating. He's six foot nine. He's very calm. He looks like at any moment he can explode. So yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. All these things have crossed his mind. But he's a little bit different. I mean, I, I've never, I've been around, oh my God, I've probably been around more serial killers than any law enforcement officer ever has because I live with them, and I actually was assigned by the warden of St. Quentin to be the IDAP worker on a serial killer yard. So I've been around more than any of them. I've never felt threatened by another serial killer or a serial killer in my proximity that he was going to grab me or do anything. It just doesn't cross my mind. I, 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 maybe I've been I'm kind of callous to it already. My, my mind doesn't work that way, but no, it doesn't cross my mind because, I mean, they're not very scary. Look, I mean, if they got a gun in their hand, they come to your window at 2 in the morning, yeah, they could be a little scary, but uh, not in, in these circumstances. So the reason you haven't encountered this guy, you know, unwillingly, obviously, is that he's in this psychiatric ward or a mental institution, whatever it's called, whatever the PC term is. Did he con the system into being in this facility, and is this a better setup? If you're able to do that, does he have privileges that he may not have on death row? Yeah, well, he was never sentenced to death. Um, you have 60 seconds remaining. At the time, the death penalty was uh, not 
happening in California was in 1973-74. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional. So he got eight life sentences. He was sent to um, the California Medical Facility. At that time, yeah, they would have put him on a main line. Somebody would have killed him and beat him. So, yeah, they put him in a place where he would have been safe. And, yeah, he got a lot of privileges and still gets privileges because of the whole mental health thing. Uh, you know, we, we've talked, we hear all these guys being called on death row for mental services. It's just freaking ridiculous. The call right back. So, yeah, as I was saying, yeah, he's in a facility where he probably gets a lot of privileges. There's a lot, you know, that particular facility has a lot of mental health services, and he's taking full advantage of them. But as I said, he had a stroke very recently, and he's not in the best shape of his life. I'd say he's pretty close to being, you know, in the ground. So, um, yeah, that's all I know about the guy. But, yeah, I never run across him because, of course, he's not on death row. But if he was on death row and he was here, I would have made a point to get close to him. I would have wanted to study this guy. That should be completely intense with you. So this guy's entire livelihood, for a while there, as you said now, he seems a bit like an invalid, but for a while, you could tell that he relished the opportunity to talk. He would just talk to anyone and everyone and and continue talking. And I don't know how to phrase it, you know, because you're in prison and it's not for a disturbing thing or anything like that. But at one point, I think you told me that you you don't like to see visitors very much because you don't want them to see you in this environment where you shouldn't be, in my opinion. And I'm pretty conservative on crime, but it's there's nothing justified about the situation. But can you talk about, like, how some guys welcome all this attention and then your scenario is that you you really don't welcome it because you're doing other things. Do you have any thoughts on that? I guess it's a long-winded question. but Yeah, no, it is, but it, 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 it is true. Um, with a lot of these guys, like Sarah Coast, they like to visit because it, it puts their name out there and makes them more famous. It, it gives them a lot of you get to meet people, they, they give you things. You know, you get packages, you get televisions, you get all these things. And with him, it, it was him networking. He was basically doing what people do today with networking. He, you know, does audio books. You know, a lot of people have written books about him and had to interview him. You get to get a piece of that. All these guys get a piece of all these things. In California, they don't have a son of Santa law. So if you talk about your crime, you can still get paid for it. Oh. Um, so... On the other spectrum, when you refer to me, look, I've, I've had, um, I, I've had, I've had a lot of business recently because of all this COVID thing, but I used to get business pretty regularly, but it never, um, it always affected me when I had to say goodbye. Um, because the people that are coming to see me, I actually care for those people. They're, they're not just a, a meal ticket for me or someone spending money because I've been in prison. I have never once received a dime from anybody. I've always made whatever I had to from my own work. But, uh, you know, I've said this before that when you commit a crime, you have the direct victim, which is the person that was victimized by your crime. But what you don't think about is that you also make victims of your family, your mother, your father, your sisters, your loved ones, the people who actually care for you. So my being in prison and, and having one of my sisters or, uh, you know, my, my parents come to see me, it affects me in a very uh, emotional way because I have made a victim of my family and of those that love me and, you know, that I love back. So it's a very different situation from a guy like that Kemper who relishes getting this from FBI people and all these different things. And look, you and I have known each other for some time now, and you and we have not uh, met in person. I'm sure we would at one point, but I've never really pushed the issue because it's very difficult to, you know, have a friend and then make leave. There's an empty feeling that really affects you if you have a normal relationship with someone. Most guys like Ed Kemper don't have normal relationships with people, so those people are just tools. It's very easy to say goodbye and walk back in. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I guess we'll leave it there for now. It's definitely been interesting. So until next time, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Aguirre. Peace.
safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life can depend on it. We'll see you next time.